0: If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you doing, my friends? Thanks for tuning in. I'm coming to a finish line of sorts. For regular listeners of the podcast, you may have noticed that I started putting these out about once a week this fall, and it was a big step up for me to make this happen after doing it about every three weeks. I did my best to keep up the quality, and in fact, I think my new sound editor, Casey, uh, has done an amazing job, and they're sounding as good as they ever have. And this new schedule kind of got me into a routine and a flow that I think actually made me tighten up my game a little more and got me to focus on the essence of what is my mission here. And I can only hope that this has come through in some way with the increase in output, the podcast has more exposure and is seeing new opportunities, which hopefully you'll also benefit from here in 2020 through listening to highway to health to keep you up with it all. I'm following my own advice and giving myself a little hiatus, taking some, some downtime to rest and refill my creative energy and get organized for the next season of episodes. That being said, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast because I might have a few surprises coming your way around the holidays. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and create your own blueprint for health. Having worked in integrative health for more than 20 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our world come to have an effect on our health. And it is my hope that through the content and conversations you get here on the podcast, you'll be able to navigate it all uh, with greater ease. Sony Albright educator and administrator for City of Lakes Waldorf School, is my guest for today's show. We're going to talk about human development, and it's one not to miss. She'll be up here in just a moment, but first I want to give a sincere thank you to all of those of you who have become supporters of the podcast this year. It is your monthly support that helps this project grow. We've still got a lot planned for the vision of this project, which you can learn more about in our short video at patreon.com forward slash highway to health. Uh, if you've been meaning to help the project grow and become a supporter, this is a great time of year to get involved and you can do it for as little as $1 a month. There's no long-term commitment. If your situation changes, you can take a break at any time. It only takes one minute and, and, uh, it, all you have to do is just click the details link on this episode that you're listening to right now on your app, pull up the show notes and you'll see a support the show link right there at the bottom. So this conversation with Sony Albright today feels like a perfect closer to this season. And hopefully it plants some seeds for the new year. As a parent, I think a lot about education, which is partly what we're talking about here. But it's also about building foundations and thinking about what human development is in the first place. Even as adults, we're still working to identify and undo some faulty programming that we received so that we might move ourselves and our children and ensuing generations into a greater awareness of their life's purpose and to find joy in the process. Sony has lived with hearing loss, a health challenge she shares with others in her family, and yet she is one of the best listeners I know. Some important things to consider in this one. Please enjoy my conversation with Sony Albright. Where did you grow up?
2: In Dickinson, North Dakota.
1: Where's Dickinson?
2: It's the western side of the state. Okay. So, um, kind of the windy part. The
1: <laughs> windy part.
2: <laughs> yeah. Windy
1: part. Where did you? Did you? Uh, how, how many t- siblings do you have?
2: I have a big family. Um, so I assumed
1: since four brothers year. and
2: two sisters. <laughs> yep. And um, they, I, some of them are still in North Dakota. I have one sister in Colorado and one brother in Hawaii, but. We kind of are all over, and I'm number two, so I have one older brother, and everybody else is under me. Is that a good no. way to put it? <laughs>
1: under your under your rule.
2: Yes. <laughs> Maybe.
1: <laughs> so how did you? How did you? Where, where did you go from? Did you go to college there too?
2: I went to college at um, University of North Dakota in yeah. Grand Forks, yeah. and. Um, the second windiest place <laughs> is Grand Forks. Yeah, and but actually, Grand Forks is way colder, so it's uncomfortable there and really cold there. But pretty fun place to go to hmm. go to school. So several times for education, I would come out to Minneapolis. And oh, did that you? Was like my first poke of like, oh, ah, city, city. city yeah.
1: life. Yeah. Did, did you study education?
2: I did. I studied education and art. Um, and those art
1: history or or.
2: Visual arts. Visual arts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So I actually did a concentration in um, jewelry making, which I never do. Mm, I would right. definitely I consider that. myself a painter or, or um, a two-dimensional artist mostly. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes you do those things in college and they improve you in some way. But um, yeah, I don't use all of those classes of jewelry. It's just, I don't know, maybe too expensive. It's all that equipment. and
1: Yeah. So so when did you start getting into education?
2: I started volunteering, actually, in classrooms when I was in middle school. And I just kind of... I Any, never anything stopped. with art? Um, actually, no. I was volunteering in um, the special education classes. When I was in middle school, they had... It was not a, um, not a program that was really integrated with the rest of the school like it is today. Um, and so... It was an opportunity if you wanted to volunteer instead of having a study hall, you could do that. And I was really into service work. Um, And so I did that and it was just so amazing. I loved it. I loved being in the classroom and I have a tendency to be bossy. And a little bit vocal. And so those things actually work really well in a classroom uh, too. Yeah. But I'm also super curious and, um, and I like people. I like to yeah. just like hear what they're about. And so there's lots of fun things about teaching that match my personality. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of always found myself in some sort of a classroom or doing some sort of a leadership thing or a training thing where I was... Um, teaching other people about yeah, something. Yeah. And
1: I almost went into education. I was I was I was an English major. So I've, I've So you a, were
2: naturally set up to go into education because you, if you're an English major you Well, what
1: else it. you <laughs> And as it turns out I've done a lot of different things, but yeah. but the but that was the thing with with them, I, I always just had. I, I liked working with little kids. Yeah. I mean, from the time I was younger, I always had like a, a couple of friends who were like a little bit younger than me, and I would always teach them like sports or how to do something or play games with them or whatever. And and I had a couple of friends who were like a little older than me too. So I, I almost kind of like, you know, got it from maybe my teaching style from them a little bit too. But then I, I, I'd kind of, in college, I'd sort of gotten into music and then I, the master's in education stuff had just started when I was when I was finishing college. Mm-hmm. So I applied for the first year of master's in education at the U of M and they only took 30 people. Oh, and you I, went
2: to the U? I
1: didn't go to the U. I went to St. John's University ah, here.
2: But okay. I applied
1: to go to the master's program there and I didn't get in. And I didn't test very well for the, you know, whatever the thing is I had to do for that. GRE. Yep. Or yep. Um, and so... But I was also, I think my focus was just elsewhere too. Like I was kind of really into music at the time and I was playing a lot with a bunch of different people. I was in different bands and um, and the economy sucked. So I was working all these sort of like odd jobs and I certainly wasn't, you know, making much money. Mm -hmm. But neither were any of my college graduate friends. And so we all had creative projects going on. Even my friend who I met today who's going to help me with the website is like, you know, from the same thing. He just built his, you know, graphic design business basically, you know, at that point. And it's now it's kind of a, a a pretty big thing. So yeah. And I, and, but it's, it's funny how like just the intention of that. And I actually, I did a little bit of volunteer work here. I have a few friends who are teachers and I did some like after school reading stuff with some of them volunteer. And I, I loved it actually. Mm-hmm. I didn't love classrooms as much though. Maybe that was like the difference, but I've 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 done a lot of, you know, with my with my practice, I do a ton of one-on-one education work. And I and I, you know, I love that. That's the kind of what I I think my my the way that I've set my my practice up is really Mm -hmm. more education-based. Sure. Like it's, I I even set it up as program so that there's kind of a point at which you graduate. Like I want you to be, be, have a whole, you know, set of tools that that you're sort of, you know, leaving me with and may come back if something else gets off track. But otherwise, you know how to take care of certain
2: things. That's pretty unique. I would say most caregivers are like... (laughs) Hoping you'll be there for life. <laughs> right, right. Well, and
1: I and I think that's that's like the way some systems are set up. They're just they they don't have the time to do the, the. I mean, it takes me a lot of time to do that. Yep. And I do think a lot of I have other doctor friends who are trying to do more educational stuff or trying to like bring materials in with their you know patients that they can or you know refer them to places that can sort of guide them through the different things. Yeah. Like nutrition wise and that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, it's. So I've and I, and I did toy with going into nutrition as well, but that's a whole other world <laughs> a lot of a lot of the way our habits of eating the, the the way that we start kind of developing those go so far back you almost need like a PhD in psych to to deal with people's you know eating challenges so
2: well, and I'm in a yeah. Waldorf school where there are as many ideas about health and nutrition as there are people in the school yeah so it is so. There's. It is so personal. Instead of like you're saying, it's more psychology than actually. It's not always data driven. It's not always it's just a lot about how does it make you feel mm-hmm. and what feels right to your family, what's ethical for your family. Um, but you know, Vanessa's going into that. She's doing. Um, I know nutrition counseling.
1: So we have to say it because this is <laughs> this is such a crazy story of how we know each other. I, that Vanessa was my client in New York, who I became close to because her husband's from Minneapolis. And then they moved to Berkeley and we went to go visit them actually a few years ago and, and stayed with them. And then the next winter, I think you, we, they were coming back. She came to see me for a treatment when she was in town and we went out to dinner with them. And then she was saying, Oh yeah, my friend Sony just came to town and She's. They. They just bought a house. Where's your. Where's your new place? We just. We had just closed on a place, and so we told them, She's like. I think you guys live in the same neighborhood.
2: You're pretty close. We live th-
1: <laughs> three houses away. So, I know that
2: was a wild, a wild encounter. Yeah.
1: And I love that. Like we still didn't see each other for a while, and then you just drove by in the car one day and rolled out the window and yelled out,
2: <laughs> "Are you Jeremy?". <laughs> Well, I was trying to be neighborly. I'm thinking like I totally need to go over there and say hello and introduce myself. Gotta do this. And I don't know. There's just something about those busy times of year. Where I just couldn't even walk three houses down. That's terrible. That's yeah, terrible. Yeah. Anyway, I'm so glad we met.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so I want to go back to like how. Did, so, so you, so you go from that from doing that that kind of volunteer work. Did you end up going to more schooling for for education before? getting into what you're doing now or
2: so i did my undergrad at university of north dakota um for education and then um then i had an eye focus as well and then i immediately was ready to get out in the world and um do my teaching so i did my first year of teaching in las vegas and (laughs) i just wanted to move some more exciting some more fun and (laughs) i was 21 and that was good timing so So what
1: was that like
2: that was really interesting. Vegas is, if, when you think about education and the goals that you have for education, it's to remind kids that knowledge is power and all yeah. the things that can happen for you. That And Vegas is actually sending the exact opposite message to children because money can be gotten quickly, money can be gotten yeah. easily. There were students in my class that were parking cars and had a baby at home. And we're making twice what I was making,
1: Yeah. you know,
2: as yeah. a, a first-year teacher with a four-year degree, and about. I, I think that's
1: maybe not not just a Vegas thing, though. I feel like there's kind of some of that mentality that's crept into like a lot of aspects of culture, too.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I certain, see it more and more.
1: And and it's and it's I think it's a real travesty that teachers are paid what they are. And this is the first, by the way. This is the first I've, I've been wanting to do um uh, some episodes about education because i just think from like a, a, a well-being perspective it's crucial it's exactly what you're talking about like you know we're not setting up some of those foundational things and yeah money is is something that we need to come by and we need to do that but but you know there's there's this sort of balancing act of all these different things that, that you seem to do well too with having sort of you know, your your career and your art, the, you know, having those, having those kinds of balances are, are important. I mean, obviously, you have, we have to make money somehow, but to just focus on money as the one goal from the start right out the gate is, I think, just such a problem in terms of all of our human relationships, too.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And yet for really young people, they don't actually have the brain development to say, what? is going to happen if I make this choice now? What does that mean in 10 years, right? That that frontal lobe development yeah. doesn't even happen until they're 25. That's when you have the mature brain finally arrived. I
1: heard that men's brains are now not fully developed until 43 or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, very close to around there, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the never-ending. No, there ending. really was a
1: study that came out just recently. I, I
2: saw it. that <laughs> exact same thing. But did you see how many people were involved in the study?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't look into it. It
2: was a super low amount of people. Yeah, it was okay. like twenty-two or something. And I was like, "Well, I'm going to wait for the next definitive." Yeah, but
1: it's a great. It's a great title. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how it gets out there. Yeah.
2: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So I'm sorry. Um, so so you back to, back to your how you kind of got. Yeah. So I taught in Vegas for
2: a while. Um, Met my partner and um, decided to move closer to where he lived in Northern California um, and be teaching up there. And that was kind of the beginning. So now at this point, I've been involved in education for almost two decades on and off, but definitely consistently um, and in a variety of experiences. So teaching mostly middle school and high school, a little bit of elementary, but mostly middle school and high school is my um, focus. And um, also in a really incredibly uh, poverty-stricken population. Um, In Vegas, I taught in a school that was an actual um, really difficult neighborhood, and it was a... um, tenement building that they tore down put up a school and then of course all the people who had been in there just kind of moved very nearby and so those were the students attending that mm-hmm. school so that was one population which is really interesting and just super high poverty yeah. um, and then I moved to Palo Alto California and taught at what is the considered to be one of the top public high schools in the country consistently over and over again um gun high school Um, it's right next to Stanford university, it's Google and, you know, all the big Facebook and all the big wigs right in the neighborhood. So all of those people's kids, it's a public high school. Yeah. But treated kind of like an independent school in a lot of ways in terms of the way that the parents act, I would say for sure. Um, and probably the expectations on the kids was really a lot like that. So I don't know if you saw that documentary that came out, um, Came out shortly after I left, um, Ghana High School. But it's called "Race to Nowhere," and it was about the suicide epidemic. I, I, I
1: saw that. I've never I've never seen it, but I've seen. the I title. highly recommend it. Okay,
2: it's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. But it was a really competitive and uh, outwardly pushed educational atmosphere, and what I saw of the kids in that school was so very similar to what I saw in the school in Las Vegas, where the kids lived in extreme poverty.
1: That's interesting.
2: Which was reactions to stress. So the kids spent a lot of time doing whatever it was at that moment that could reclaim their childhood and give them kind of a break from the stress. That was, you know, in Las Vegas, it would be like really young kids smoking or, Mm. you know, um, taking inappropriate substances during the day or, you know, really young yeah. kids. And at, at, in Palo Alto, it was the same, but then there was the coffee in the morning and then the heavy gaming, um, yeah. like all through the night. Yeah. There's just a lot of those coping mechanisms that you go, oh, they're really trying to solve something. But the biggest thing I noticed in the affluent schools was the cheating. That was uh, interesting. mind-blowing to Which me.
1: we now know. Yeah. this last year like how much parents just sort of like uh, you know they can they can just put up with some of those things and figure out ways to get them in probably full well knowing their their kids aren't really doing well in terms of learning right
2: the apple definitely wasn't falling far from the yeah, tree um and i would say most parents didn't see that as a big problem so it was just an interesting, look, um, I've taught in public schools, I've also taught in Montessori school, and uh, charter school, and um, Waldorf schools, and so all these different philosophies have different ways in which, you know, people find us and come look for this particular type of education, but then also the, it's an interesting look at how the kids operate in those systems.
1: Yeah so i want i'm I'm really curious to know more about Waldorf schools, partly because of our friend Vanessa <laughs> and she I, I i they were in a waldorf school in in New York at the time, and I was kind of learning a little bit from her as she was going through it and i I know that they moved to that area specifically in Orinda. is that is that where the school was that, that, where, that where you guys met or? Yep. Okay. So
2: East Bay Waldorf School is actually in Osterbonte, California, um, but yeah, they're living very close by there. Um, and I was the admissions director at East Bay for a few years, um, and also a teacher at the school. And so we, and we had kids in the same class, which was, oh, that's right. which was how yeah. we met.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so t- I, there's this, there's this idea that I was just, you know, reading about and doing a little research for, for our conversation, but this, the... Steiner, who, you know, Rudolf Steiner, who's sort of known for the, the ideas behind Waldorf, right? Tell, tell me a little bit about like how, why, how you connected to that or, you know, what, what, was, it, what was the appeal of, of that?
2: Yeah. So first I want to say I am the admissions director, so it is my job to articulate <laughs> Waldorf education. I figured. Um, but
1: tell me about anthroposophy. Anthroposophy
2: <laughs> is the word you're looking for. Yes. Yeah. So anthroposophy is a piece. Of why Waldorf education exists, and they have a um, a separation in some ways, but then they also inform one another. Or actually, more so, Waldorf education is informed through anthroposophy, or people teachers work out of anthroposophy in Waldorf education.
1: So, can you define the the word for?
2: <clears throat> sure. So, anthroposophy is a um, a spiritual study, if you will. Mm-hmm. And Rudolf Steiner, a um, hundred years ago, took these different ideas of cultures all over the world and tried to look at what is it that they're using to explain the world around us mm. and people and yeah. where do they come from? And so Rudolf Steiner was an interesting guy. He was... Um,
1: and what was his lifespan? When, when, how, when was he around?
2: So it would have been you know, the twenties is really the time we're talking about when okay. he was really this part mystic, part um, you know, scientist, philosopher, artist, creative thinker. Mm-hmm. And he was really revolutionary for what he did during his during this time period. Yeah. Um and he worked with a lot of really prominent artist, creators, thinker, scientist at the time. So, he's very
1: he's very renaissance exactly. during a time when that really wasn't a thing.
2: I mean he was in he was in a place where there was heavy war going on right. and where people were really thinking about Survival. origins of species and where people were really having converse you know, really very new conversations, mm. um, more publicly than ever before. And where we were starting to see more people interact with people that were um, unlike themselves in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, so he was t- doing a lot of traveling and, and um, learning. He was a consummate student and just really spending a lot of time learning and researching. And so anthroposophy is sort of the mystic piece of Steiner where he came to put together this, um, this way in which a human being or a spirit of a human being may exist in the world. Um, And it's an interesting thing about Waldorf education because a very small percentage of people who are in Waldorf schools would consider themselves anthroposophists. But Waldorf education has this idea that when you're teaching to a child or you're you're, um, interacting with a person, they're not just the person, the shell of that person. There's something deeper in there. And that... Is the idea coming about what does the development of the human being look like? Mm-hmm. So Rudolf Steiner took ideas from you know all the major religions in the world, um, specifically uh, Buddhism, the the Hindu the Hindu faith, mm-hmm. um, the Hebrew faith, some out of Christianity, a lot of things, and kind of brought out what are these things that are similar between a lot of these um, philosophies of faith and religion and or just um, philosophies and what makes them different, and so he had some interesting ideas. And like I said, not everybody who is an anthroposoph- who is in a Waldorf school, believes in anthroposophy or associates themselves to be an anthroposophist, um, and that's actually okay because the idea of Waldorf education is really about child development. And so Rudolf Steiner was looking at the education as it was in the world and saying, "Huh." I've come across all these ideas about how human beings are and somehow we're ignoring that and what we're doing is we're treating five-year-olds like they're seven-year-olds instead of letting them be five and he disagreed with the general way in which many adults and authority figures were interacting with children. The yelling and the the really harsh punishments and the um, a lot of the out of their developmental range, giving them abstract thoughts way too early, um, eliminating play and eliminating joy out of learning. Mm-hmm. And so he his his idea was to bring some of those things back. And people associate empathy and Waldorf education in a way. Um, like I said, because he is drawing on the information that he was putting together to try to figure out why are people this way, and how can we do education better, mm-hmm. knowing what we know about how people are really internally?
1: yeah I, I think it's interesting, just in terms of being a parent and looking back at my own you know upbringing, I, I ended up going to a Catholic you know grade school, and my mom grew up in a small town in Iowa, so this was back when they were doing masses in Latin, and like you didn't really have a choice. It was like you sort of grew up in a in a specific way of thinking spiritually, you know. With and and I, I think I even from a very young age, I think I thought differently. In fact, I ended up having conversations with my mom at one point. By the time I was getting to the end of my eighth grade year, <laughs> it was like this is just not working for me. Like I don't buy some of these people and the way that they sort of behave versus the, what they preach. And, you know, like I, I was, I was really struggling with that part. And it's, and it's not like I was, I think I, there was some good moral, you know, backdrop there for what what I was learning from the, from the text. But I also think like you're saying, it's like, it's too complicated for a child's brain to be sort of forced into thinking about these big concepts of things when they're, when you're just not ready for it. And and yet kids are very spiritual in nature or, you know, this, they, 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 they sort of do well in the mystery of things, you know, that's, that's the, the space that they play in. That's where imagination exists. So I, I, it's one of those things I've been pretty mindful of with my own children and, and I also treat a lot of kids. and it's been interesting that's been another interesting thing for me sort of working in these two different cultures so far between New York and Minneapolis. I'm sure you had some you've been in a few different places. but there's there's, you know, I, I find I have to address the families very differently when i'm when I'm dealing with children. And yet a lot of what I'm trying to do is actually cultivate a relationship with them where I become another trusted adult that they can kind of voice things to that they might not be able to with their parents. And there is a, there's a oftentimes like a jumping off point where they'll, I'll say, do you mind if if you wait outside the room during this session? Or or the kid will bring something up where it's like sort of clear that they want to just have a little more space from things, you know. And they, it might not mean they're going to tell me anything. It's just that they kind of want that space. So you know, and I, and I think, you know, schools can be those spaces for, for kids, and it sounds like. What you guys are doing is kind of creating that, that space for them to kind of be, you know, that, that way.
2: Yeah. And um, I think that's so true. And what I heard you say, actually, that's really interesting, is you're listening so carefully that you're noticing the subtle differences mm-hmm. in how, um, what, whether it's parent expectations mm-hmm. or whether it's how kids are raised. Um, but there are they are differences. And yet, you can pretty much rely on the fact that the development of a six-year-old is, there's a baseline, there's a similar baseline of what you can expect, right? Um, so, yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting look at education. It's an interesting puzzle. Um, a lot of education is, uh, do you want me to give it like an overview? Yeah, yeah, that?
1: That, that would be cool.
2: And I always like to preface when I talk about education because I've spent a lot of time in public schools and, I've, and parochial schools and, um, like I said, Montessori and other independent and charter schools, and I'm a big believer in what is the fit for your family and what yeah, is the fit yeah. for yourself. Um, if you have this idea that there's only one place and it's a one-size-fits-all, you're about to get a big surprise <laughs> right, right. when your child reminds you that's... This is not right for them.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and so, and there are some really amazing things that um, even in Minneapolis here, but in every city I've been in, I'm amazed at how many amazing things are happening in various forms of education. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wilder for Education is a developmentally appropriate philosophy of education that stretches children, but does not stress them to really maximize where they are at that present moment. So a five-year-old is given the perfect challenges for a five-year-old. Not a five-year-old to look like a seven-year-old or to act like a seven-year-old, but really to be right where they are in the moment. Yeah, Art, music, and movement are woven into the curriculum in all points that can be um, integrated. And the uh, academics are robust and rigorous, but again, very developmentally appropriate. So... I, I can give lots of examples, but why don't I just share a couple yeah, that kind yeah. of highlight um, how this might look to somebody? In the early childhood programs in Waldorf Education, it's a play based program where kids are steeped in nature. They're spending, it depends on the school, but at City of Lakes Waldorf School, they're spending in preschool or kindergarten 40 to 70% of their day outside, depending on how long they stay through the day and what age they are and which class they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going out through 10 Below, and they're going out Rain or Shine. Um, and they're spending the inside time doing free play and also other activities that are really enriching. So, the art, music, and movement component that I mentioned. The biggest misconception about Waldorf Education is that it's just free form kids are just playing and there's no structure and everyone's just kind of running amok the whole day. Yeah. And that's actually not the case. It's very structured. And in fact, if you wanted to compare Montessori to Waldorf education, the biggest difference would be that in a Montessori classroom, it is way more free form. You have a lot more choice. Mm-hmm. There are many options and you gravitate towards what you want to gravitate towards. And it's the teacher's job to notice that and to help you facilitate taking that thing further. Okay. In a world of education, it couldn't be more opposite. It is that everybody-does-everything model. So you cannot opt out, yeah. and you must opt in. Um, and so that doesn't mean that if somebody is feeling nervous about doing circle, that they're forced into circle. It's much more like the expectation is you're not just building blocks because that's what you feel like doing at the moment. Actually, now is circle time, so we're all going to do this. And... The idea behind that is that we really rub down some of those edges when we spend time doing things that are hard or mm-hmm. challenging for us, yeah. and but also really feel fulfilled and met when we're doing things that are the thing we couldn't wait to do, yeah. the thing that's our favorite yeah. thing. So that would be a, a classic early childhood classroom is going to have a really structured day, but inside of that structure, there's a lot of free play and creative, imaginative play happening. And those are the things that we value. You can't actually measure those. You can't actually put them onto test scores or really attribute any sort of definitive progress to it, except by what you see and what you notice um, in terms of spending a lot of time with that child. And so that's, again, an important part of World of education, the relationship. The teacher really spending a lot of time getting to know the parents and the family, just like you were talking about. Yeah. It's absolutely key to know how to proceed to have that relationship. Yeah. And... Um, they, they spend so much time with them. So in early childhood, when you're in preschool, you stay with the same preschool teacher for both years. When you're in kindergarten, we have a two-year mixed-age kindergarten program. You stay with your kindergarten teacher for two years. You're developing a relationship that children can sink into. Mm-hmm. They're not now worried about what this person's going to do or how, what is their reaction. They're comfortable with yeah. that person and, yeah. and how they are. And so they can really sink into the learning. Once they get into the grades program, typically a teacher will stay with the class for several years, if not all eight. That's becoming more and more rare today as mm. people are more and more transient yeah, and yeah. change jobs a lot yeah. more. But um, it's still the idea of looping for um, more than one year. Yeah. And again, it's all about the relationship. Um, it's about establishing it at young and teaching kids about... What is that mutually respectful relationship with an adult that is not your parent look like? Mm-hmm. And how do you achieve that? And that is hard, hard work. Yeah. Um, if you go to any, you know, third grader on the street and try to introduce yourself and shake your hand chances are they would be pretty confused about that mm-hmm. looking at an adult in the eye and having, you know, a handshake with a grip and yeah. being able to have that what we call them usually, that's hard. That's yeah. hard work.
1: it's also it's also culturally because we like one of the things i've I, I made a point of from a very young age with my kids is not baby talking them. Mm-hmm. Like when Iris was a baby, I was talking to her as if she was just, you know, also having been through this and having worked in pediatrics, I I really got a sense of like, just talk, just start talking to them. They're, they're, they're picking up your cadence. It's not all, not, not everything is coming through in words. They don't, they, even by the time they're five, they don't pick up a lot of what you, what you're saying in words.
2: Right. I read somewhere 30%.
1: Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> but, but but they're picking up a lot of intention, and they're picking up right. just all the sort of subtleties in, in nuances in, in you know the way that you engage with them, and I think that's part of the reason why kids like me is because and like your daughter, <laughs> apparently yeah. turned me into her best friend already, <laughs> but but <laughs> she's trying to teach me how to ride a unicycle the right. other day. Right,
2: she's she's <clears throat> dying to do that. She she actually said when your kids came over, she said, "Is, is Mr. Jeremy coming?" Here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but it's but, but part of it is because you meet them at at that level which is maybe kind of a more soulful thing it's like yep. that's that's the one thing i feel i i i've had a few great experiences with teachers in my in my kid's school I've been I feel like I've been very fortunate with with that both yeah. in both in new york and in minneapolis yeah but i've also had some you know teachers who i feel like it's either a little too much about them or it's a little too much about maybe they're just a little green in their careers and they're trying to impress somebody or, you know, there's like all these different pieces that, that go on. But I think that part, partly is due to the way, I mean, I don't know. what's, what's, what's the, what's your public school or did you go to public school when you were growing up or, or private school?
2: I went to a religious school, I went to a Christian school. Um, and so then a public similar. school. Okay. So it was by half half. Me and too, half. me too. Yep, yep
1: and and i and i there are certain things that i look back on when you were talking earlier i was thinking about like we just had to go outside for recess no matter what i mean right. it was kind of like that th- that doesn't happen anymore and and i think there's something to be said for like the development of instinct and really really sort of understanding the nature of your you know of your world i think mm-hmm. it's i find it harder to get kids to go and engage with nature these days and it's one of those things I've been, you know, our vacations tend to be based on like where can we get them out in places and have them engage because it's really hard to do during the school year. It seems like with all the activities we have going on and they just don't get enough time. Whereas I, I felt like I spent a lot more time outside as a kid. I don't know if I spent 40 to 70 percent, but but I but I certainly feel like that was – I I just never wanted to be in the house. I always wanted to be out there, so –
2: yeah, and it's, it's something that's so prevalent now that people are, have given it a term, nature deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. And there are groups and clubs and organizations doing amazing work to bring really urban kids, especially kids who do not have the means to seek out nature in whatever way they can, yeah. um, to get them out of the city and into a place of... Really raw nature. Yeah. Um. I don't think we give nature the credit it deserves for how therapeutic it is in our kids. Yeah. Um.
1: But also being able, I, I did this. I don't know if you did. You listen to the podcast I did with Ginny Larson. Oh, I haven't
2: look, listened
1: to that one yet. So she's uh she she does nature nature based therapy basically. And and um one of the things that she talked about that has stuck with me. I keep I keep thinking about about this is that we have this love hate relationship with nature too. You know, like we have to mm-hmm. deal with all the you know the parts that we don't like too—the bugs and the humidity and the, you know, the wind and rain, the sideways rain. You know, those are all part of sort of being in those elements. But I think the more you get comfortable with those kinds of things, you 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 kind of I don't know you you learn the. The the balance between those kinds of things, too, where it's like it's not the worst thing in the world to get wet. Like Iris, one of her favorite things to do, with my daughter, is to go outside and, and and just run around in the rain for a little while.
2: I'm pretty sure she just came over to my house with wet hair. <laughs> I was like, Will you just swimming? <laughs> I'm pretty sure she's over right now. So like,
1: there's something about, you know, like there. I think there's 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 something about just getting comfortable with some of the messiness so that if you, you know, if you're traveling someplace and you're going to end up in environments that just aren't as comfortable naturally, you, you know, they, they, they don't totally ruin your experience too.
2: I want to challenge that a little bit because I actually think that's true what you're saying, but I think that's adults. I think Mm. kids don't express that nearly as much. And I think that they have a much more open, oh, yeah,
1: that's probably true openness yeah. to
2: discomfort in nature. Oh. And what's happening is they're mimicking the adults in their life. And so it's their schedule is really all about what the adults in their life will allow them to do or want them to do. So unfortunately, that's an easy thing to cut a lot of times in education today is going outside because it can be a pain in the ass. You yeah. gotta get all your snow stuff on. That takes forever. You gotta help everybody suit up, and yep. then it's hurting cats to get them outside. <laughs> yep. And oh my god, it might be raining. <clears throat> or but, but for kids, they're looking outside and it's raining, and they're thinking, "This is this is actually the best day to be outside." Can I please go outside? Like the, yeah. But so how wonderful if the adults in their life were actually the cheerleaders for that, yeah. instead of the ones that were like, not I don't want to be. What do I really have to?" Yeah. Um, I think that's the most unfortunate thing for kids, to have that kind of squashed out of them. Yeah. They pick that up pretty quickly.
1: <laughs> well, and there's a certain amount of, like, you know, protection that we want to have of them, too. Right. That they don't have for themselves in some ways. But I still think we they have to be out in some discomfort to, to even see what the boundaries of, of that are, you sure. know, like... What does I mean? My my kids actually we we like to do this when you know you you've experienced this now since you've been here, but you probably had it in North Dakota too. I mean, I I
2: know the thirty the thirty below
1: stuff, where it's like it it is dangerous, but it's kind of amazing to go out and experience for a couple of minutes, you know, just to just to sort of be out there. And last last winter, I remember we were out there for a while. We did the water thing where we throw the water mm. in there. But then, <laughs> but then we, but then it was sort of like, well, what does it feel? What does it feel like if you just go out in your sweater? And like at first, you know, Phoenix, my son, was just like, oh, I'm, this is totally fine. He's he's there for like a minute, and he's like, Dad, I'm not even cold. I'm not even cold. <laughs> and then it it hit all of us almost at the same time. It was like. 90 seconds in or something where it was just like, <gasps> you could just start to feel like all of your body heat just kind of being sort of robbed from yeah. you. And so, but, it, but, you know, like it's good to go have that experience too. I mean, that is. Is, that, is an, that is an education of its own.
2: It is. And I think it's really important for parents to um, do what you're saying, take charge of the how can I help them be healthy and happy outside mm-hmm. um, and safe. That's our job. Yeah. But it's not our job to tell them what kind of weather sucks to go outside right, in. Right. right? <laughs> I mean, I I just feel like that's so unfortunate. It's it's a blessing that my kids have grown up with teachers who because they spend so much time out and they value nature so much, they are suiting up right with the kids and it's just is sort of this like, well, of course we go. We're outside all together yeah, kind of thing. No problem. And I will say too because you are a bodywork person and yeah. you understand the mind-body connection about the midline and about movement and all of those things. I always ask parents to think about if you are in a room right now and a three-year-old came in, would you say to that three-year-old, hey, buddy, climb up wherever you want to climb up. Go nuts, right? Hang on the curtains if you want. Go sit, Stand on top of the couch with your right? – you wouldn't say that. But if you were outside and there was a bunch of trees or it was a park or there was like – you would say that. And so intrinsically, the type of movement that a child does outdoors is so vastly different. And when you shorten the amount of time that they spend outside and then take away a lot of the opportunities for them, them to even be outside at all. And then you put that with the science behind neurological and physical development. Mm-hmm. 90% of your neurosynapses forming from fine and gross motor movement yeah. between zero and seven. Yeah. That's a crisis. That's yeah. a huge You're creating problem. a
1: dangerous situation, potentially.
2: And now we have so many kids seeking out occupational therapy, which is exactly yeah. the remedy of those sorts of things. Yeah. And so I, I think we, sometimes as parents, are overthinking it. We're like, what kind of things can I do to bring out the brilliance in my child? And I think it's back to basics. I would always tell parents, how much time do they spend outside? Double that if you can. Yeah. That it, it's a powerful thing for kids to have really a lot of unfettered, unstructured um, time outside. Yeah.
1: There's there's a there's an interesting documentary that's that's out called In Search of Greatness, and it's like. Do you know anything about it it's a I just Wayne,
2: heard about it Wayne
1: Gretzky, Jerry Rice, the Williams sisters, John McEnroe just like all these different fig- Pele but one of the things that they really get into with all of them was was that, th- that there was there was there was kind of a jumping off point for all of them early on in their life and and they I think the the thing with all of them is like like the Gretzky brothers apparently were all great but he was the youngest one and the smallest one but that also was the one thing that his his dad picked up on the you know this this sort of weakness, but also this curiosity that he had, and he just kept stoking this. Like it really, it was all about instinct. It was all about just putting him in situations where he had to kind of like push himself past the next thing in a in a sort of way that he he wanted to you know he he could sort of see that you know if he just put him there so that was why he kind of figured out how to like skate around the big guys and not get hit and he wasn't the fastest guy out there but when the when the puck was close to him he knew how to get to it he was kind of slither around the big people <laughs> whatever it was so i always thought those those kinds of things are interesting in the way that i don't think educationally sometimes we 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 put them in a in a complex situation and just say I want you to try to figure this out, but I'm not going to give you too many rules. I'm not going to give you too many leads on what to do. We just kind of like, see what see what you can make of this.
2: Yeah, it's it's almost like um, everything is so prescribed now. We've yeah. got this plan and we've got No Child Left Behind and we've got Common Core. It's just so specific. Everything has been thought of that the open-endedness really isn't valued very much anymore. So yeah. what I see with high school codes is that Exactly. We're, we're, we're putting out a lot of kids who can follow directions perfectly. But did they ever have to muscle through it? Did they ever have to do, oh, oh, this is really, I don't even know if I can see an insight to this. How mm-hmm. am I ever going to get out of that? Yeah. And those, that's where the magic and that's where the learning happens. And if I'm talking about world of education, I will say that, that, that everybody that does everything, opportunity, everybody does everything is so golden because if you have a child like I have a a really academic-minded kid who will do math and science and she will you know read 10 books a day and that's her thing and if she was in a regular model they would put her in gifted and talented classes and she would do a lot more math and science okay but what she wouldn't do then is actually more concerning to me. She wouldn't have time for art, music, and movement. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't be asked to do those other things that make her well-rounded. And I think about that all the time. And she's an eighth grader now, and I think, what would that be like for her? She wouldn't play the cello. She wouldn't play the piano. She wouldn't wouldn't struggle with something for crying out loud. Those things come so easy to her and are so valued that if she never had an opportunity to sit down on a watercolor painting and realize how actually hard it is. Wet paper, wet brush, it's got a mind of its own, it goes where it wants. You have to let go of control in order to make something beautiful. That's an amazing revelation for a kid who's really high level academically to experience. And so I always brag that her education has allowed her to fail way more than she ever would have had an opportunity to do that. And if she was failing for the first time when she was 24... That would be a problem. My guess is somebody like Wayne Gretzky failed a ton. A
1: ton. And all in those early years, he had to deal with you know, these bigger, older brothers all the time.
2: And he was probably left to his own devices. Yeah. Because they were probably doing what most people do with their oldest children, which is sort of like move them along. And oh, man, there's somebody else back there, too. What? What?
1: <laughs> yep. Come on. Catch up. Right, catch up. So what
2: are you doing back there? Um yeah, so I I can't wait to see that. That sounds fascinating. It's
1: it's short, and I, I you know it's not the best documentary. I don't want to oversell it, but I just think there's there's something in there that really piqued my interest, and I think it's something that maybe I had an experience with that I that I I'm I'm thinking about it. Of course, I wanted to show it to Phoenix because I'm I'm just sort of where he's at developmentally and stuff to help him understand that you know it's not all about you know sort of your size or your right. skill level. Sometimes it's really, it's really about, I mean, and he has sort of like a, when he plays soccer, he's got it these, and he's always had this with sports, just like the passion for the game is all there and it serves him really well. And, and also just sort of to trust your instinct too. you know, to, to be given the, the, the freedom to trust your instinct and those kinds of things and to fail, you know, like, like you're saying, I think that's, that's actually, and I, I felt like I got to do that a lot as a kid. I was not, I was not a very gifted athlete at a very young age, but I had all these people around me who were older who played and like I kind of had to play because they needed another player. And all of a sudden, somewhere around like six or seven, eight, maybe I blossomed and I became like, you know, a much better athlete (laughs) than most of them, which I think can just sort of happen if you, you know... Just get forced to kind of figure it out on your own. No one was telling me that I had to play this sport or that I had to do this, except for that I just had to be in the game. Sort of like what you're saying.
2: What gave you the drive? Where did that come from? Did it? Was it the competition <clears throat> part, or being better, or getting better?
1: It's funny. I I, I had I definitely had a competitive instinct, but I, but I think I was always just paying attention. Like it's, it's I don't know if I can explain it any better than that, but like. You know how if you're watching young kids out there with, you know, sort of playing a sport, there's one kid that always just knows how to get to the ball or whatever the whatever the game is, you know. And I always kind of had that that instinct. I always could kind of figure out like how it was going to move around. This is one really interesting thing on the documentary is that Wayne Gretzky used to sit and watch hockey games and he would he would make the ice on a piece of paper with the, you know, line and the circles and stuff and you know half half ice and then he would he would as he was watching that he would draw the the way the puck moved around on the ice to see where it ended up so between these two teams if they spent more time on one side or in one corner or whatever and apparently later on in his career he still used that trick and he figured this out he no one told him to do this he just started doing this as a kid so there's something there's and you know there's there are these little things that for whatever reason we pick up on and it's it's funny because in my in my career I think I have the same kind of instinct of seeing a pattern over and over again. It's like I've seen I've seen this before and you know now I've done like 20,000 some treatments but you know for for the first 10 years of my career I think I had to like really develop that that part of just staying open and not not making judgments about something that came in but after a while you start kind of seeing that pattern over and over again and you you start realizing techniques that you, you know, to safely try this first. And then, you know, all, all of a sudden you kind of develop your own, you know, protocol for those kinds of things. And, you know, some of it is taught, but a lot of it was stuff that I just kind of figured out too over time.
2: Yeah, that's actually an amazing thing that, um, so you probably had a propensity for working with people and doing body work and you probably had a little spark, Yeah. but actually it was the hard work of doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that Got you to the point that you want to be at. Yeah. And that is such a missing thing. We think <clears throat> so yeah. much that if you've got it, you're born with it, or it's just gonna like show up, and that's gonna be that's gonna be the amazing thing. And what you're saying, and I think what a lot of people forget is that actually, it really is just a very little bit of inspiration, and the rest of it is perspiration. And 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 without Einstein, I
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think this is one of those things, and I. I've always sort of credited it to that. I like. I'm sure you've experienced this as a teacher. I don't mind repetitiveness. Mm. I don't know why. Like I could, I could go. You know, when I was a basketball player, I could go shoot for hours. It didn't bother me at all. I I knew there was kind of a, a rhythm or, a, you know, something that I'm probably doing some sort of neural training, probably <laughs> with my body, right? But, but I but I knew that there was something. You know, even in in the way that I was working with people, like I I started learning ways to use sort of verbal cues with people when they were moving so that they would sort of be able to catch certain things that they were doing in in movement pattern and stuff. And so I I never had any problem when I was working with, with that to just be saying these things over and over and over again. And I think like what you're saying, I think... That's the perspiration part of it is, the, is just being willing to... And, you know, some days are more boring than others. I mean, that's just going to be part of it too. But some days the, the inspiration comes out of just the, that routine of being able to do that same thing mm-hmm. over and over again. And then it's like, whoa, there's an outlier here. Mm-hmm. Now I'm super interested.
2: <laughs> right. Well, have you ever wondered why artists paint the same thing over and over again?
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: And I, I, do, that. I do that. I do a series where I will literally paint you know, this same chair like 40 times and most of them are tucked away in a little box and they're not for sale, they're not coming out. and if Because mm-hmm. right, it's not about that. It's about when I get to the one that I wanted to paint or the, the way that it, it can look or you're just trying a bunch of things out along the way.
1: Yeah,
2: It's such an interesting process. So I totally agree.
1: <laughs> so why do you think that, I mean... There are certain things that I feel like I, I agree so fully with with Waldorf method. Just and we've sort of touched the surface, I think, a little bit of this it's stuff. A
2: lot to say, yes. But but
1: I, but I think there's there's an aspect of sort of and and I I think about this in my in my practice a lot of times is acknowledging the whole person. Yep. What I, what I find people are why people want to work with me over longer periods of time is because there's there's a there's a whole you know process of them delivering their whole person to me and 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 them trusting me to help them with with these things. and sometimes it's not all me sometimes i'll I'll refer them to somebody else who I think will just be a great match for them. and part of the podcast was you know my initial idea was that I could use some of these podcasts as referrals, which I've done mm-hmm. for someone who I think you know. I, I love working with oh, you know another another colleague of mine that I wanted to have you know have someone be able to listen in on our conversation, you know, and also to give resource, you know, if that's simply what it is, but also sometimes to say, I think this is a person you could do some work with that you would really like It'd be you know, you'd enjoy your time together. you know there's there's a part of that. So in terms of like you know Waldorf stuff, what's and because because you've worked in all these different educational systems, and, and for and for such a you know over over two decades, what do you think has changed in the way we've we've chosen to do educational systeming in the U.S. and 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 why can't some of this stuff be infused in it?
2: No, I think you make a really good point, and that was a super big loaded question. Sorry, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to say first is is. I'm a big proponent of Waldorf education. My kids go there. Yeah. I teach there. I work in there. I've studied it, and like you say, I've been in a lot of other educational models to which I used to compare. But I'm also a big believer in fit, and yeah. it should feel right for your family. Yeah. And it shouldn't be the education shouldn't be changing to make someone else happy. It should be you finding where can I go because there's so many choices. And that being said. I believe very strongly that there are certain elements of Waldorf education that should be available to all children, and I think it's kind of a shame that we are removing things from schools like music education and right. art education yeah. and time outside and a recess, um, and in favor of, unfortunately, almost always in favor of more time on devices, and and less time doing looking at each other in the eye and having meaningful relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's changed over education um, in the last two decades is a lot. But I would say the idea of the relationship between the parent and the child is so different now. And there's been so many books that have come out about it um, that just sort of point to the trends. Um, I'll put Tiger Mom out there yeah, as yeah. an example Children are seen as trophies in the, the way that, you know, thirty years ago it might have been the trophy spouse instead of the trophy child. Yeah. And so or there's accessories. this idea. Right. <laughs> so there's this idea that kids have something buried deep inside them. And it's up to us as parents to throw as much time and money at that thing as we can once we discover what it is and create our own little Olympian or mathlete or Harvard grad or whatever it Uh is. And if you just, you know, think about that and just kind of how inappropriate it is to give a child a job at a young age. Or to assign them attributes that you think are going to be the way in which they'll be successful later on is shutting off so many parts of them. And that was the most disappointing thing for me in education was that kids were really tunneled in one track. And if you excelled academically, that was probably okay because that was seen as the most important track. And in order to focus on that most important track, we have to get rid of all these extraneous things that don't actually mean math, or don't actually mean getting into a college, or don't actually help you do whatever this other excellent thing is. And actually, all the data says something totally different. Mm -hmm. It tells us that kids who spend daily time immersed in meaningful music, education, instruction, or personal use actually do way better in math and science and reading. And for kids who struggle in school academically, subject classes of a varying nature, whether it's moving your body or being creative all can actually improve that academic um, um, work. And so in world of education that's that's a really big thing that I value is the fact that we're saying okay, we're never going to take away recess. There's still two recesses a day all the way up through eighth grade. There's one that is is almost 40 minutes. Um, It's sacred. It's really important to have that downtime, that social time, that time outside, that time when you're doing something that someone's not telling you because that's the moment and also other activities that are not information coming into your head. Those are the moments where you're fermenting the information that you learned that day. Yeah. So that really hard academic information, instead of piling it on all day long, all the way through 3.30 when you're out, you're taking a break. You're doing your most heady academic work for the first two hours of the morning. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing practice, repetition, or subject classes for the rest of the day so that you can hang on to what you learned yeah. in a really new way. Yeah. So when you're knitting... After you've just learned geometry and now you're doing your knitting and you're sitting there and and handwork is a quiet class where you work without talking, you are literally meditating and doing a repetition to a project that has a meaningful conclusion, but that takes months to finish, like a pair of socks. And so it's meaningful, it's gratifying, it's hard.
1: And unconsciously, you're, 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 it's related to
2: it's the related. math. It's related. It's so much counting. It's so much math. It's so much um, you know, adding and subtracting and decoding and all those things that go with it. But because you can't put that onto a test, you're right? show me how you knit your socks, it doesn't equate as true learning or like, that's just fluff. Yeah. And that's the thing that I always challenge parents when we look around at education A lot of schools say, oh, we're all about the whole child. or we're all about the well-rounded. We want every kid to have all these. But do they, though? Because you can tell by the way the schedule is set up. Mm -hmm. If there's one art class 40 minutes a week, you know that that's not a value. If recess is 20 minutes a day, that is not valued. If music is optional, not valued. So it's just really easy to see. And for some families, those things aren't valuable. And I totally respect that. But I do think that there's sort of a, um, a, a untruths when it comes to a lot of educational models where people are trying to project because now the whole child idea is really hot yeah. and the holistic education is really hot. Everybody's talking about that. But a lot of education has been doing it for 100 years. Yeah. And we actually go back to pulling all that data out and showing why we do what we do it's not an accident. It's been really curated to support the development of the child. We introduce, for example, a strings instrument in third grade. Not so that we can say, oh, our children are orchestrals. Yes, students. right, right. But actually, third grade is the perfect time to start homework. So, that is the first homework for a third grader in a Waldorf school is to, oh, I got to take this instrument home. Holy smokes, it's expensive. I have to take care of it. Oh, I have to remember two days a week to bring it Tuesday, Thursday. All right. What day is it today? I got to remember to bring my instrument. Otherwise that comes against me. Um, and so it's developmentally appropriate.
1: And, and I, I, I kind of, as you're, as you're saying all this stuff, like, I feel like I need to plug the arts a little bit just in terms of all that stuff, because for one, I mean, going back to a few different things that we've talked about today, you, I think there's something about doing art that teaches you to, to to manage failure a little bit, because it just happens in every project that you do in a way that you don't necessarily get in math. If you get it wrong, you can figure out the right answer. But in but in art, it all it all it's sort of tapping into like all sorts of different things about. How you're trying to get something that you feel or something that you're thinking about out onto paper, and then and then you know the other parts of, of things that I feel like we're just struggling with. And I think about this a lot with my my wife's career. When she you know she's yesterday she came home and she was telling me about a, a meeting she had with one of her former coworkers from a, one of the big four accounting firms, and she went back to get her MBA ten years later than everybody else who ended up at, at this place. And so she she always kind of felt like she was the mom of all these <laughs> these people, you know, and and but the other part of it is as as time is going on, she's realizing a lot of these, you know, they're sort of now I guess they'd probably be in their like late twenties, mm-hmm. um, young adults who are they, they they lack a certain kind of uh, some of it's social, but some of it I think is is goes back to what you were talking about where they they got pushed as you know special students into the places that they were really good, but they never had to learn those things that they were really bad at. Right. And so they they can't even identify those right. things. You right. know, like this woman that she was talking about was was really like not even realizing something that was really bad that was going on. And as soon as my wife pointed it out, she's like, Oh my God, you're right. But only because of the way that I think, and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm projecting here, but I, I do think that there's a lot of people, especially in that field, it's a sort of a very conservative way of, of thinking about who you are becoming as a person to get so narrowly focused and specialized. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of problems with this in medicine right now, I think too. But, but it's, but it, it really does make us unable to sort of like problem solve in in, in very crucial situations too.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the number one thing that I hear from people in the corporate field. Mm-hmm. And a lot of corporate parents come to me looking for something different. Like, I'm not quite sure this is working out. Like, why are these 20-somethings coming to me exactly like you're saying, mm-hmm. able to follow my to-do list but unable to execute anything that doesn't have an explicit set of instructions? They can't problem-solve and they certainly can't problem-solve creatively oftentimes. Um, which is such a, a shame. So, it, probably, what we're doing to kids today is giving them these very adult tasks at a really young age. Um, and and I'll just use one example of a million that I could think of. But one example is in a world of kindergarten, kids don't learn to tell time. They might know how to tell time, or they might. So, but a five year old, we're not going to take our time out of the day point to the clock, show them how to use it. What does this mean? Count by fives, all that. We're not doing that. They might learn it. That's okay. We can talk about it. We talk about time. No problem. But they don't, because if you asked a five-year-old to tell you, um, or if you you asked your five-year-old, tomorrow at 10.30, we're going to go to the dentist. Can you remind me when it's 10.20? I mean... (laughs) Is now tomorrow? Is it 10 right. now? What do you, like, they have no concept of time. Right. if you said to your five-year-old, in three months, we're going to go to Disneyland. They'd be like, it's tomorrow? Uh, yeah. is, we're going to go to Disneyland tomorrow? <laughs> we're going to Disneyland! Just <laughs> one more sleep I'm going to make, right? They have no clue what time yep. is like. Yeah. And we study time in third grade um, when kids are nine. And my nine-year-old can then make a calendar and you know cross out the days. And if I said to him, we're going to go to Disneyland in three months, he would say, oh, okay. Let me think about that. 5th, oh, oh, it'll be summer break when we go. Okay. All right. the season will be like this. Oh, it'll be warm. When I'm, I'm going to be wearing shorts. Oh, I could. Okay. It makes so much sense to talk about time with a nine-year-old because you can go so deep with it. Right. You can talk about the Jewish lunar calendar. You can talk about how people created time over time. And it's, the perfect use of your time to talk about time yeah. at that age rather than when kids are five. And so what's happening now in the world is these kids have only heard the things they've heard really young age, and they haven't actually been in a, um, a lot of opportunities to just play and act out the scenarios happening around them and the creative, imaginative things, the original thoughts that their brains have the capacity to create. And it's such a shame. I think it's just so. I, I get really sad when I think about that. <laughs>
1: Do you, so, so would you would you say? I mean, I just some sort of general rules of of what you've learned that younger people need to be developing more their sort of interior, you know, landscape, understanding their you know relationship in nature more and save some of those more intellectual pursuits and probably until that. I mean, I feel like it's between. I've read somewhere that seven is where we start to kind of see the, the world.
2: That's uh, the year. Yeah. And the Finnish know that really, really well. In Finland, yeah. they start formal academic at seven. It's the number one school district or the number one public schooling system in the world. Yeah. And they understand that early childhood is a time for exactly what you're saying, time in nature. Working on those social skills, my goodness. If you're looking at a paper and doing worksheets, that's all fine and good, but you're not looking at somebody. Yeah, Yeah. and being physical and movement. Um, The other big one that's really lost is self-regulation. Are you spending time learning to manage your person by sitting and listening to a story that's being told that doesn't have flashing lights and pictures and a video Mm -hmm. attached to it? Um, Can you sit at a table and eat with your cohorts and wait your turn to talk? Can you not touch your food until everybody has their lunch? Um, Self-regulation is hard, but it's practiced. And that's actually the only way you can improve at it. So I think we don't give a lot of value to those very foundational and subtle skills that early childhood is the only time that we can offer our kids a chance to develop that. Mm -hmm. we're sort of fast forwarding. Yeah. As oh preschool is a new kindergarten and five is a new nine and you know, it's just yeah. why? What yeah. what for what? So that they can get out and graduate um college sooner and be confused yeah. about their boss's to do yeah. list sooner? I mean it's just seems it just seems so backwards. Right. Right. But to set them up with a lot more opportunities for creative creativity and just zero scheduling, I think yeah. is the number one. Yeah.
1: So I, I know that um Technology, as I've, for some reason, I've, I always hear that there, this dialogue going on with Waldorf and technology. So, we kind of started touching on it the other day, but I, th- I wanted to hear just a little bit more about. I, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky subject because we're we're entering into an age where our kids, you know, have. That the devices have been set up for them to figure out at two years old. You know, right. I remember Iris saw an iPad the first time, and she just like swipe, tap. It's it's, it's so instinctive. right, but but it, you know. Then the other side of this, you know, and 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 how 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 much they can get drawn into it. But the other side of this, I think, is that all the things that we've been talking about that get missed from having that, and then in the later years, though, where you and I started talking about this, is that. We still live in an in an age where they they do need this, yep. and you know, media has its place. Yes. you know and and so i'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts I, and and just sort of, is there a general rule for for Waldorf as well?
2: <laughs> yes, a general rule. So Waldorf schools are absolutely known for no technology in the classroom also very unique to Waldorf schools is the idea that we have a media policy that we ask parents to follow when they're in our community. And that doesn't mean that it's a hard and fast rule and there's like somebody peeping outside your window to see if you're watching Star Wars at night or something like that. But it's more of a, okay, you're coming into the school. Here's what our curriculum looks like. This is one way in which you can support the curriculum and the teachers, and here's why. So, when you come to a Waldorf school, you will not see, there's no computers in the classrooms, Except for my class, which is um, a class that I teach to middle school students at City of Lakes and also taught in California. It's called Cyber Civics, and it is founded by um, a woman named Diana Graber, who is a teacher at Journey Waldorf School and has developed this program over the last decade to address media literacy and digital citizenship. So it is not about actually using the technology, because as you said, two-year-old Iris... Knows how to use the technology. Yeah, no problem. Uh, we gave my grandma an iPhone, and she figured that out real quick. Yeah. Right, it's not a problem to learn the technology. Apple yes. has ensured that it's simple to use. Yeah, the idea of what's tricky and will remain tricky for life is that these are not developed adults. They don't have ethical thinking. They don't have the capacity for understanding what happens long term. And they don't have a proper understanding of consequences. And that is classic adolescence, whether yeah. you're talking about 1952 or whether you're talking about 2019. It is exactly the same conversation. It's just that the world looks different. And so in a Waldorf school, we are asking, especially in early childhood families, to take a big step back. And Why? Well, we are putting our emphasis on creative thinking and unfettered time playing and the social connection. So if a screen can do any of those things better, and I say a screen, but I really shouldn't say that. I should say media use because mm-hmm. there's just so many screens and, and I'm not trying to lump everything together. I really do differentiate between passive and active. And, but I'm saying all media use for really young children under the age of six my recommendation to families is to be really thoughtful of that because if you look of any child development page, what do kids need? What is it that they're going through developmentally at the moment? There actually isn't anything except for possibly FaceTime that gives kids the things that they need at that age. Mm. They don't actually need to be doing numbers games on an iPad no. when they're four. They're going to do all that. They're going to do the math later. What they actually need to be doing, and they really have very little time to do, and we already talked about, is spending outside, playing, creating things, making things. Socializing. Yeah, yeah. and moving their physical body. Yeah. And the iPad doesn't facilitate those things. And so really it's not about uh, a shaming or a judgment or, or, like, who does and who doesn't. But if we think about how many, how many opportunities we give our kids to learn to self-regulate, You go to any restaurant in Minneapolis right now and see a family-friendly one and look around and see how many kids in that restaurant are placated into silence with a device. Uh Instead, there is a rare opportunity in that moment to have a meaningful conversation. And holy smokes, can that be hard? I have four kids and some of them are really hard kids. So to go to a restaurant with them is not always easy. But parenting actually isn't easy.
1: <laughs>
2: right, right. And Childhood isn't either, I guess, yeah, you know. Right. Um, but it's not about that. It's about the opportunity to improve and get better over time. And we're taking away that opportunity by giving a device that does all the work for them. Yeah. And so in, a, in, in our language to our families, what we're asking them for is to give a wide berth So that when a teacher is telling a story, and an oral tradition is a big part of a lot of education, the the teachers from the very young all the way up through eighth grade tell stories without pictures in an oral tradition. And when you hear a story spoken in a theatrical way um, or in a way using really rich, deep language... You better be so paying attention. So there's self-regulation happening right there, right? Mm-hmm. But then as you're hearing the story, you are mentally picturing the things that this person is talking about because you don't have something in front of you that gives you the picture. Yeah. So then if you hear a princess in the story and you've seen every Disney princess movie ever, then you're just going to pluck from that very easy, mm-hmm. very bit. Super-duper created by a professional (laughs) princess-looking person who somebody already made, and you're going to pluck that into your story. Instead, the alternate, if you hadn't seen all of those, is what you would do is come up with an original idea of what that means. And that princess could have a different skin color. It could have a different body type. It could be a man. It could be... I mean, you don't actually know what kids will come up with in that way. But that's the whole point. They're going to look around at their world and that will be the reflection of that or the personality characteristics of that person will be taken up by something that's familiar to them. What an amazing gift to give a kid that opportunity to not cloud them with someone else's story. And the other idea is If play is the work of the young child, and that's undisputed, we know that children play because it is the way that they work out what's happening in the world. Yes. If they see you in the kitchen and they're thinking to themselves, holy smokes, he's put that thing into the pot. Oh, and a totally different thing came out. Oh my gosh. And then he set it on the table and everybody came and ate it. That's amazing. (laughs) For a three- or four-year-old, that is really fascinating. Yeah. All of those things that happen yeah. there. Yeah. And then your timer around the table is all about your social norms as a family. Yeah. How do you talk to one another? What do you talk about? What do you do? What are you eating? Who was the cook? All those things are stuff that kids are going to work out and put that into their mental file of, oh, this is how family operates. So let's take a child who has, um, who has experienced that cooking thing. What are they going to do in their spare time? They're going to go to their play kitchen and copy exactly what they saw dad mm-hmm. doing. Oh, he made that thing and he did, this is what he did. And then she's and then going to invite you to come right. and share that meal with them. They're working it out. They're working through that. Mm-hmm. They're going to do the same thing in the classroom. They're going to take that to the class. They're going to sit down and they're going to invite their kids to do that. Other kids are going to have other ideas about how mealtime goes. And so there's going to be some jostling and some, oh, we got to work this out a little bit. Super healthy um, navigation skills happening there. But if somebody has, especially for young children, a lot of media, and let's just take a movie, for example, and the most villainized one would be Star Wars, so we'll just go with that. Um, And I love Star Wars, so I'm not villainizing (laughs) that part. But... Let's just say a really young child's watching Star Wars. They're going to encounter something that is so fantastic in the sense that they can't even wrap their head around what's happening. There's a conflict in there. There's norms that are not familiar. There's subtleties. There's, um, you know, all kinds of, of things that are confusing to children. And so they've seen that. And it was really... Um, pulled them in and it was just maybe shocking or maybe just a lot, so overstimulating. And now they've got to work through that. And how do they do that? They work it through in play. So when they get into the classroom with the other kids, they're going to give everybody the direction of a linear storyline that was already created, not their own. And it's going to be characters that already have all of the attributes. You're the good,
1: I'm, I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. Right,
2: right. And they're going to work through that. And there's, there's, there's really intense conflict there. Yeah. And they have to do that. That is their job to work through that situation. So instead of allowing them to work through all of these complicated life things that we're showing them every day in our home, We've added an extra layer of stuff that they now need to process, understand, and work through. And that's what media is for young children. Um, They also don't have an off button, um, and they don't have the ability to know when they've had too much, and they don't have the ability to know why they're drawn to things. It becomes very much like um, the tantrum comes out really easily around those things Mm -hmm. because they're designed to keep you it's a game loop. It's classic, right? Right, right. And young children are incredibly susceptible to that. So it's almost we, we unfair. We all are, too.
1: We all are, too. And that's the, and and that's the other thing. And adults
2: are, too. I always tell adults, take a look at your own, the favorite thing that you like to do mm-hmm. on your device. How much do you want to go back to that? It's so fun, right? Yeah. Now Imagine a four-year-old who has no idea... Like it would be like setting out a tray of popsicles and broccoli, and saying, "What does your body need, sweetheart? You know, yeah. take a pick. What What do you think? They're never going to choose the broccoli, guys. Never." Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: it's It's interesting that there, there's one thing that I keep thinking as you as you're talking with. I mean, just in terms of like, wh- what, what is what is it that we want the the end result to be for? Right. It, it's not just you know what this child is going to look like you know at the end of high school or at the end of college but yeah. the 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 long game of all this stuff you know and i and and there's something that i've become sort of obsessed with recently and part of it is because i'm trying to make more creative space for myself to do mm-hmm. different kinds of work to write to work on this stuff and and this this idea of white space it's it's kind of a nice thing to think about this it really is just like you know, the blank canvas, or just and but it is time too. you know it is it is this kind of space that we that we allow for ourselves to just kind of you know ideate things with that that I think is that's what we're really trying to help our children do is to be to be able to really self generate ideas. Mm-hmm. And it relates back in some ways. I mean, I, I think the the interesting thing about Waldorf is that we're we're considering us to be spiritual creatures you know we're we're here uh, for for a limited time to do something and it's our job to kind of figure out what that is
2: yeah that is so true and it's the job of a parent to instead of give more give more stuff for kids to do to actually take a big step back and let it do let let our kids do what really comes very natural to mm, them yeah it is so obvious when you watch kids play how enjoyable it is for them. Yeah. Have you ever seen your child grossly engaged in something and then said, oh my gosh, we got to go get your boots on, let's get out the door? That's the exact moment where they're going to lay down on the floor <laughs> and have a fun on <laughs> tantrum, right? That's yeah, the moment. Yeah. Because they absolutely are in a joyful place. Yeah. And we're sort of taking it as like, ah, it's not really that important. You'll have lots of opportunities yeah. to do that. And they don't. Come they on, don't. chop chop!
1: We got to get to this thing. We got to
2: get gone. It's so is so the rush. So it's a it's a it's a gift we give our kids. I think mm-hmm. to stand back from that, and as kids get older, to on ramp them in a healthy way. To be thinking about how can I introduce my kids to um, media in a way that shows them what my family values are, and in a way that continues to uphold the thing that makes sense for our family while also showing them the amazing things about Mm. technology and the ways in which, I mean, we're making this podcast right now, which would have been really hard to do 30 years ago.
1: 10 years, 10 years Maybe impossible. It would have been
2: on a tape deck or something. But we look at it as more like, oh, we just don't know enough about it. And so we're just totally hopeless. And so we hand over this access to the entire planet at a very young age when kids don't have the mental capacity, they don't have the ethical thinking, they don't have the problem solving to get themselves out of the inevitable pickles that Mm -hmm. happen in the online and digital space. And more importantly, we're not in there with them and we're not coaching them through it. And somehow we do that outside. We feel like we're doing that in the real world. Why aren't we doing that in the online space? And so when it comes to grade school age kids, I always tell parents, please, please, please be super slow and thoughtful and think about every time when you are having access to digital media for a child who's, let's say, between the ages of seven and 10, think, is this meeting my family's value goals? Mm. What do we value in our family is the thing you need to ask yourself first if it's like laying around and doing really well at like crack trivia and, you know, candy crush, then okay, but I doubt it. Most it's, it's people are not going to It seems that. like
1: something that, that, that parents should be asked to sort of work on when their kids are entering preschool. <laughs> I mean, seriously. It's
2: true. It's absolutely because true. Because you're in a
1: fog for a little while. Right, <laughs> right. But then at at that point, you know, like let's start developing this. You can change it, you know. As as the you know first couple of years go along, maybe you'll realize oh I feel I feel differently about this thing now. I want to change my my goal set. But I mean, I, one thing that's nice about I didn't start having you know kids till I was a little bit older. I had a little more time to process some of this stuff. But I think you know anyone in, in their twenties can start to process this stuff and and make some pretty solid decisions. Mm-hmm. We we have an instinct for what, what it is we want our, our life to look look like. We can we can project some of that stuff.
2: How what's what's your family's relationship to media? How do you because you have a younger child. We're terrible. I mean how about <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I, it's it's up and it's up and down, you know. Yeah. Like we I, I think it's it's interesting because we it it's it really depends on on the time of year, I think too. Sure. Um I, I also think that when we get out of the city, even here, I wish we we, we had a little... <clears throat> when, when we're sort of even in Minneapolis, I mean, there, we, we haven't set up enough for ourselves here to just let them go. We also have kids who are like very different ages, which has been a, a bit of a challenge right, sometimes. So right. sometimes we like let Phoenix go do his thing and then we engage Iris and I take her for a bike ride. And sure. sometimes we get all of us to go do these kinds of things. But there are times too where when we have projects going on for ourselves we kind of slack a little bit on on those things so
2: can i ask be do you have parent guilt about that or do you oh, feel yeah, like so, totally. you, so you think about it and i think that's a problem i think i think so many parents are like god i don't like it but i don't know what to do yeah um, what's I, your I, hope I, for your kids about technology what's your hope for them
1: um i think there's there there are aspects of what i would you know i'd like them to understand its its place in in terms of like it doesn't substitute for relationships, but you can stay connected through it. I think that's a, that's an important part of things. It can be entertainment. It can be, you know, you can play, you can do different kinds of things with it. But I think the most, you know, I, I, I try to like help them understand that the most meaningful things that you're going to get in your life are going to come to, from an exchange with another person and through an activity.
2: And how do, you, how do you put an emphasis on that? Other than saying it, what are the ways in which your family um, shows that that's a priority.
1: I think just in the, in the things that we take them out to do, you know?
2: So already you have articulated a family value that you have yeah. face-to-face communication
1: yeah.
2: and you've thought about the ways in which we're going to get there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my guess is, and what I think a lot of parents struggle with is something or possibly the media is occasionally getting in the way of that. Or maybe like you see, okay, oh, yeah. we're sitting down here and we're all on our devices. What the heck is going on, right? We're not connecting. That doesn't fit with what we believe in, right?
1: Well, yeah. And, and the thing is, m- my wife and I don't really do that much on media at all unless we're doing work. Right. I'm not a big social media person. I'm, I'm actually... Just finally getting someone to help me a little bit with getting some stuff <laughs> posted for the podcast. Yeah, I, and, that's,
2: I, and they're probably around their twenty-five or something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, that, that's that's totally legitimate and, and and totally normal.
1: It's not the world I grew up in either, and I also. In my twenties, I play. I was a, you know, from about the age of twenty, you know, through all the way through my twenties, I played music all the time. So I was engaged in something that was a physical act with other people. And my wife's done like sort of physical art as her background for a long time. So we don't. We're just not. I'm not a big. I like. I like movies, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I. But I don't. I, I don't really like TV shows. <laughs> so yeah. I don't. I don't sit down to watch things. And our kids aren't big TV people either. It's been, it's, you know, the, the wormhole is really YouTube mm-hmm. and for, for older teenagers now it's video games.
2: Well, and YouTube is designed to be that way. Yeah. Um, it is, the whole point of it is how can I get this person to stay on here as long as possible. Yeah. So, right. And, and automatically since you brought that up, I can tell that that's probably something where you're like, you know, somebody's doing that, and it's probably itching at you. Like they're not watching, you know, Dr. King's speech or something, right? <laughs> right. Um, and I think for a lot of parents, we start to recognize where hot buttons are. Yeah. Because what is it about YouTube that bugs you, or like when you see them get go down the wormhole? What What is it that? I,
1: I, I think it's it's the it's the bouncing around, it's the, in, the, the inability to kind of stay on, on something and really kind of like tune into it for a period of time. It's all these sort of flashes and, and that, that kind of stimulation. And I, I kind of, you know, I think that there's there's something about that just from maybe this is from my neural training that I just know is like horrible for us. And so like I, I don't like that. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll like with Iris at, at this age, if she wants to have some time on the iPad, I'll, I'll sit with her. And she'll say, "Oh, she wants to show me a show. Okay, I'll watch a show for a little while." And I think that's you know better. And and yet sometimes that's ideal. Actually,
2: what you said is ideal. Yeah. Because the thing that bugs you is the thing that goes with all of your training and everything you know about how just like going from thing to thing is probably really hard on a developing brain. Right. Is what is what I just heard you say. That's what you heard. (laughs) So you already know the thing. That doesn't sit well with you. And as a parent, I don't think we take back the control in how many ways we can change that. You know, it doesn't mean just because that one thing bugs you doesn't mean we say no to YouTube forever. But it can mean, Daddy want to watch YouTube, okay, what do you want to watch? What are you doing? Make it intentional. Yeah. Or you want to learn how to, um, you know, That's crochet a certain yeah. stitch on YouTube? Great. Yep, let's sit down and watch a few videos on that. Um, or you, is there something you're interested in looking at, but the endlessness and the bouncing part is the thing that bugs you. And all I heard was if that was out, you could see how YouTube could be productive. Right. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I think as parents, we just let it go because we assume, oh, that's just the way kids are today. And there's a great book out there called Be the (laughs) Parent. I love that book. Um, and it's just always coaching parents kind of like going back to something doesn't feel right. How could I keep it, not and not turn it into donuts, not turn it into the thing that they'll seek out no matter what, and still make it meaningful and healthy and match what feels important in our yeah, life. Yeah. And the other thing is the balance aspect. If there's an hour of YouTube nonstop videos, you probably are going, Okay, that's the time they could have been, they could have been, they could have been, they could have been and they're doing and then will they look back in 3 weeks and be like wow uh, that was meaningful i really had that hour of youtube i let me tell you what i learned guys no right we know that that isn't actually it's pulls you in it uses you instead of you using the technology as a tool. And it's our job to show our kids what technology is for. It's for stuff like this. It's so. for making and creating. And that's the statistic now is, is showing us that kids spend less than 3% tweens, spend less than 3% of their media time, which is hovering around nine hours a day doing creative work. They're not making anything. They're consuming, and so when people look around and go, "Why is fake news so prevalent? How come people are so stupid? Why are they picking?" It's because we let them.
1: So, can I ask you one question? Sure. So, what is your rule? What What do you use for for your kids in terms of do you Do you have devices at home that they can use? Do you have obviously probably have a computer that they can use?
2: So we do have devices, and it really is about development in our house. So, um, I do not believe in giving children smartphones. Um, and so very clearly it is a wait till eighth grade for a smartphone in our house, for sure. Okay. And that's an arbitrary number. But, but how that goes is um, the middle of eighth grade, if they have proven restraint <laughs> and show me that they value face-to-face communication, and number three, have a balanced life then that sounds like the right time for a smartphone so their brain is you know at that developmental about 13 14 age where they then do have the capacities for ethical thinking so when you have a window to the world they can make some better choices Um, they've also taken cyber civics at the school Um, having been in eighth grade they will have had two and a half years of that, which is training through all those things, cyber bullying, half
1: years. Um, wow. copyright,
2: how to handle plagiarism, what do you do when somebody does something untrue online, how do you spot fake news, what do you, all those things are things we cover in cyber civics. So that's one basic rule. Um, I do on-ramp my kids and we do a lot of those things together. So every other week, every week we have either a game night or a movie night and those alternate. So there's consumption media there. Um, but we use our media like a tool. So starting in fifth grade, you want to learn 10-finger typing? Yes, let's do that. Let's set this up so that there's something you're doing online and you're actually making something or learning something. Mm. If you want to learn a language, come talk to me. Yeah. I'm gonna, we're yeah. going to find out a way to do that. That's a great thing to do online. Um, and or I want to learn how to make this not on a, yep, that's what YouTube is for. We use that for very specific videos, have learned a ton On YouTube, and we can actually all say something that we've probably learned on YouTube, right? Um, They do not have unfettered access, they don't have access to just um, mosey around. But my thirteen-year-old has computer time every day, um, and is it
1: set up the same time, like say weekdays or week, weekends, or do, 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 you, do you do you store the technology somewhere? How does how do you do that?
2: Yep. So all the devices are collected by me at night, um, and the computers are all set up so that they can only be on during certain times during the day, anyway. Um, that is a huge rule in my home and will forever be, is that devices don't belong in the bedroom. Um, anything that my kids will do, video games. Does it um, include your husband? <laughs> or, or myself, for that matter. Um, yeah, no, we, you know, I'm not the boss of him, thankfully. Um, but for my kids, the common space is a great way to set the expectations. If you are a parent of uh, a gamer and your gamer gets to hide in the room with the door shut and play, you know, multi-massive online, um, online games with other people, chances are their language is going to fit what's happening there and the norms and stuff is going to fit. Yeah. If they're in the common space, they're going to learn better manners than that. Mm. And they have to. Otherwise, you know, and then you're part of that. Then you're interacting and you're looking at the game, you're seeing it. So being really present and, and having it be in the common space is a really important um, part of how we manage that. For my younger children, they might use a device for audiobooks. Um, they are not playing games at a young age. Yeah. Um, that's a personal family value of mine. Yeah. If we're going to play a game, I want it to be a board game when we're all playing. Yeah. Um, it's very singular, and so siblings have so many squabbles that it, to me it's really important that we are spending time to do those joyous things together um, that don't pull us apart to do more singular things more often. Yeah. But again, it's all about balance. So my now 13-year-old, when she has her computer time, she, has, she can do whatever she wants to do on that. But if I ever notice... That she's no longer interested in her sports hobby or she's not spending time outside or she's not spending time with her friends. Then we're going to question, is this the best use of your time? Right. How do we get back to a place of balance?
1: Yeah, we kind of do that too.
2: And it's safety and privacy are really big things too. Do I have trust that you will not give your information out online. Um, for my older kids, you know, we get into, in cyber civics, we get into conversations about sexting and about keeping, you know, photos and what kind of legal implications we're talking mm-hmm. about there with things like hate speech and um, doing, you know, really dumb Facebook comments or... And it's there
1: forever and, and their they employers they never go away. It. Right, yeah.
2: right. Um, and the other thing I really encourage parents to do is... To think about the age limits that are set on things, um, social media platforms all have the age of 13. And so if you have a child who is under the age of 13 and they are on social media, that is YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Facebook, any of those, TikTok, any of that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff... You actually are not protecting them because that rule is called COPPA. It's the Child Online Privacy Protection Act is set up to allow your children to be free from marketing until they are 13 years old, free from tracking, free from people knowing about who they are and what they're doing. And so clicking the button that says, I certify that I am 13 years old when you're not first of all, sends a really mixed ethical message to children about what is acceptable online is not the same as what's acceptable outside of the online space. Mm -hmm. Um, And second, it is an opportunity for your child to have a bubble, a protective bubble where somebody isn't tracking them and giving them the things that they think they will want, which is called the curated experience. And it, it is real and it is true and it happens so much And we um, sort of allow it to happen. But that's how whenever you are looking at the news, that's how so much other news of similar comes to you. So then you're not actually getting a balanced perspective. You're not actually looking at other things in the world because it's so curated just for you. Yeah.
1: This is fascinating. I I, I wish I would have... I I feel like this this should be a course for, for parents... So much, it's much interesting earlier. that you
2: say that. We are doing a course for parents. It's called, <laughs> okay. yes, Tell I'm me. doing a workshop in conjunction with a company called Clockwork, which is mm-hmm. a really um, a prominent um, software development yeah. um, and um, company in Minneapolis. And they're hosting this workshop, and it's called What's Your Digital Parenting Style? And it's cool. exactly this. It's exploring what feels right to me as a parent. How can I put that out there without saying a hard no
1: yeah.
2: or a huge yes?
1: This was fun, Sony.
2: Was so fun, Jeremy. Uh-huh. Let's do more podcasts. I'm, I'm I, I can't. I'm, you've taught me so much today. I'm gonna take all my notes home and figure uh, awesome. out how to do this myself. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much,
1: Sony. All right, folks. One piece of this conversation that I've been sitting with is about making decisions with your family about what is of value to them. I've actually been trying this out with my kids. Just like age appropriateness, which which we discussed here, uh, choosing the right words is an important part of communication and direction. With an 8-year-old and a 16-year-old, I I find that asking them if what they're doing fits with what they value has created some pretty profound conversations with both of them. And I think that sometimes as parents, we get stuck in our own guilt for not having done enough or made decisions sooner, especially with our oldest kids. But it's, it's never too late. And, um, you know, we, we come to parenting with what we have. You can read everything, but there's still the work of implementing. So cut yourself some slack and do the first obvious thing and stick with it. I promise you'll feel better. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can contact me directly at jeremy at Podcast.com. I wish you all a happy holidays and all the best in the new year. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends.
0: If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress related challenges to transform your relationship to self care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.